Hey there, welcome to episode 49 of The Quantified Body. Today, we're looking at an exploration of how carbohydrate intolerance works. Looking at the evolutionary template, which is basically the paleo template, everyone will be able to relate to that, neuroregulation of appetite, carb intolerance, insulin resistance and sensitivity, and the factors that drive all of these. Besides all of these topics, I really enjoyed diving into today's guest's personal experience with himself and the now hundreds and thousands of people he's come into contact with over the last decade, coached and helped to improve health and performance. One of the things I always look for in a guest is their experience with a large data set of different people, enabling them to see the patterns and nuances for a large audience. Not everyone is the same and bringing new insights from that. And Rob Wolf definitely fits that mold. He has worked with a vast audience. Rob Wolf is basically the man responsible for bringing paleo to the mainstream, in part via his New York Times bestseller, The Paleo Solution. He also has a new book out, Wired to Eat, which covers much of the topics discussed today. He is a former research biochemist and review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and the Journal of Evolutionary Health. He is a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resilience Program and has provided seminars in nutrition and strength to organizations such as NASA, the Canadian Light Infantry, and the United States Marine Corps. Besides all of this, he is also an amateur kickboxer, a former California State Powerlifting Champion, and just recently became a purple belt in BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So he's a busy, busy man. Today's episode builds in particular on a couple of our previous episodes. The episode 48, that's the last one, which was on how personal each of our blood glucose metabolisms is. The other one was episode 43, where we looked at continuous glucose measurement using a continuous glucose monitor to better understand our blood glucose regulation. Now, one of the takeaways from Rob's new book, Wired to Eat, is using a seven-day carb test. That's testing a different type of carb seven days in one week to see what those do to you and see what your personal experience is with different carbs, because not every carb affects you the same way or like it would another person. So I ran that test myself and the results are on the blog. So you can get an example of what Rob is talking about when he talks about the seven day test and how to measure blood glucose and understand how these carbs are affecting you differently. As usual, you can get the show notes with links to everything mentioned in the show, including the studies and easy to take away and apply summaries of the biomarkers, the tracking, the tools and the tactics we covered at the blog at thequantifiedbody.net and pick out the episode there to get all of that. And then you can also get all of that in your email inbox via a newsletter automatically. You just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there and magically it will appear in your email inbox every time we bring out an episode. Now, please enjoy this dive into many, many facets of Rob Wolf's experience with the evolutionary template and carb intolerance. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Rob, thank you so much for joining the show. Hey, huge honor to be here. Thanks. Yeah, uh, huge honor on my side because you got me back into eating meat just as we discussed uh, a few minutes ago back in 2010. So that was great. That vastly improved my health. So thank you for that. 
Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So you just released this book, Wired to Eat, which I went through, and it's kind of building on what you've done in the past and also looking at uh, some of the things you've learned over time with, you know, all of the practical experience you've had implementing this, basically. What would you say is the basically the crux behind this book? Is it the neurological neuroregulation of appetite or how do you talk like think about it? Yeah, it's kind of two pieces. So the the front of the book is really starting this conversation from the perspective of the neuroregulation of appetite. So I'm kind of known as being one of the the paleo guys, I guess, and I definitely use that evolutionary biology, evolutionary medicine framework to inform kind of the question and answer process that I bring to strength and conditioning and nutrition and and what have you. But it's um it's a starting place. It's not the end point. And I think that that's where in some ways kind of the efficacy of that whole methodology has been lost. People assume that that's, that's where you start and stop. Whereas for me, it's always been, this is the starting place. Um, we're not yet able to take a star Trek type scanner and run it from toenails to earlobes and then say, okay, you need to eat this and train this way. And you know, that, that stuff like that may happen eventually, but we're still very much in this empirical process. And so then if we're in this kind of empirical experimentation process, where the heck do you start? And I throw out this really insane, over-the-top, greasy used car salesman notion that, hey, maybe evolutionary biology can inform some of where we start this this health and performance story from. You know, uh, there's this uh, model in evolutionary biology called the discordance theory, which is basically you've got an organism that's pretty well matched for its environment. And then if that environment changes and the environment can be the weather, it can be the food, it can be a ton of different factors. It could be like bacterial or parasitic load, you know, it could be anything. But if things change, it could be beneficial, it could be negative or it could be neutral. But, you know, if we start seeing disease processes pop up that we don't see in the natural kind of free living environment or in the pre-environmental change kind of story – then maybe there's something to be learned from that. Like that's my crazy suggestion is that possibly our genetics are wired up for a, a life way and a, a time that no longer exists and that is great as so many of the elements of modern civilization are that there might be downsides to it. Antibiotics are amazing for preventing septic illness and, and death. But there might be some downsides related to mitochondrial function in our own bodies and then changes in our gut microbiome, which we're now understanding may have huge implications for our overall health. So, yeah, again, I I use this as an orientation tool. And at the beginning of Wired to Eat, I'm laying that foundation with the neuroregulation of appetite, really trying to understand, you know, if we looked at high carb diets or low carb diets or, you know, what are the things – that allow people to eat in a way where they they support their activity level, support a healthy body composition, but tend not to overeat. And there are some commonalities there. And it, the efficacy of some of these nutritional approaches becomes really obvious why they work when we better understand the neuroregulation of appetite. And the, the goal on the front end of this, it, and it's kind of funny because it is fairly touchy-feely stuff, but my, my real goal is is to help people understand that it's not your fault if you find it difficult living in the modern world and navigating the snack aisle of the supermarket. Like it is totally reasonable. It's totally understandable. Now, I'm not one of the kind of like fat accepting guys either where I, I do recognize that overweight and metabolic issues are 
damaging your health or they're a huge cost to society. And so I'm not recommending that we just roll over and and die and let life have its way with us. But I'm suggesting that if we can unpack all of that emotional baggage and understand that this process might be hard, but it's doable, then we're, we're starting off at a good footing. And then in the implementation part of the book is where we get really granular in a, a more progressive fashion. We start things off with a triage process where we do some subjective elements like how do you feel between meals what's your cognitive function like how long can you go between meals and still maintain good physical and cognitive performance and then we get more specific we look at things like the waist to hip ratio we look at fasting blood glucose we really lean heavily on this thing called the lpir score the lipoprotein insulin resistance score because it, it for me it's kind of the most powerful direct means for understanding where we are on this insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance spectrum. And if we are more insulin resistant, then we tend to do better on a lower carb intake. And that can be variable. Like, uh, you know, there's a, again, there's a lot of variability with that. But we also have people that are overweight or experiencing some other health related issues, but they are actually insulin sensitive. And these are the people that tend to do better on that, like, moderate to high protein, high carb, low fat diet. And there are examples of both ends of these spectrums working pretty well, but we we use this triage process to get a, a handle on where we are in that insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance spectrum. We use a 30-day reset based largely around like a paleo diet type template to heal the gut, renormalize the, the neuroregulation of appetite. And then from there, we use a seven-day carb test where we pick a battery of different carb foods we eat a, an allotted amount, which is 50 grams of effective carbohydrate. We check our blood glucose at a two-hour mark. If your blood glucose is at or below a certain level, then that's usually an a indicator that that's a good amount and type of carb for you. If it's above that, then we start asking some questions about should we reduce the portion size? Is this really a good food for you? Because sometimes our elevated blood glucose level is not just from the carbohydrate content of the food, but it's from the immunogenic properties of the food. You know, like if somebody is reactive to wheat or eggs or soy, they may actually get a significantly elevated blood glucose response. And it's not from carbohydrate, it's from the stress response that occurs when we eat a food that we have an immunogenic response. Thanks, that Rob, a real big download there. Yeah, that, that was... A, cu a couple of the things you mentioned that stood out. First of all, you're talking about insulin resistance. It, do you see this as one of the, the, the cruxes of the issues? Is this one of the main factors? I know you've had a lot of practical experience, um, clinics and, and studies and so on. So, so what have you seen in the populations out there in terms of how important the insulin resistant piece is? Yeah, I mean, and this is a really contentious topic because people are still kind of in pissing and squabbling matches about what brings about insulin resistance. Yeah. Is it just in response to uh, elevated insulin levels, which I think uh, was an interesting theory, but over the course of time, that is not borne out to be the best theory. It still seems to relate to an overabundance of energy causing systemic inflammatory responses within the cells that then tends to upregulate this insulin resistant response. But once the person is insulin resistant, particularly when they're heading down this road towards prediabetes and potentially diabetes, there is without a doubt one intervention that seems to work remarkably well, and that's reducing carbohydrate level 
to a point where it's no longer toxic to the individual. And my my analogy to this is basically, uh, you know, photo exposure and getting a sunburn, depending on what type of skin pigmentation you have, you will be able to handle greater or lesser amounts of UV radiation before you get a sunburn. And if you do have a sunburn, there's really only one intervention that makes sense and that's reduce your exposure to the toxic levels of of uv radiation and so yeah the insulin resistance and the resulting metabolic derangement which includes but definitely isn't limited to elevated blood glucose levels you can tackle that in a variety of ways you you can starve people down on a high carb low fat diet and and it can work but in that insulin resistant state we tend to have a really serious dysregulation of the appetite and a tendency to want to eat a lot of carbohydrate. And so this is where for most people who are overweight and insulin resistant, that lower carb approach seems to work pretty magically. And even in these free living populations where people can make a variety of choices, like the lower carb intervention tends to win out. Yeah, so I guess that that refers to the saying carb cravings that we often hear. And I don't know if you've seen this, but some people, you know, they have a lot of difficulty with fasting. They'll have dreams about food if if they fast for 24 hours. And, you know, I know friends who have fasted with me. It's really a big difficult to get hangry. I know that's a term you coined Mm -hmm. in your book as well. Have you found that that correlates with some of the, the lab tests? Is that kind of a symptom of potential insulin resistance? Yeah, my wife and I, here's a good example of this. Mm. My wife and I did this seven-day carb test and uh, we've known empirically that I just don't do as well with carbs. Like I remain 100% gluten-free because if I get a gluten dose, the first bathroom I hit will require a a priest and exorcism (laughs) and probably needs to be bricked over and never used again. Like, so, I mean, there's there's no upside to consuming gluten such that I, I willingly do it. I get right. some cross-contamination stuff occasionally, but I'll have a little rice. I'll have some corn here and there. You know, we'll go to Mexican food or Thai food, and I'll, I'll definitely kick my heels up once in a while. And I usually feel pretty rough, and I may feel rough for a day or two afterwards. Whereas my wife, I'll ask her, hey, are you feeling kind of carb-headed from that? And she's like, yeah, it lasted for 20 minutes. You know, wow, I'm like, man. huh, wonder what's going on with that. And so – we dug into that deeper using this seven day carb test and we ate the same amount of carbs, 50 grams of effective carbohydrate. And we picked the same foods. It was, oh man, white rice, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, applesauce, gluten-free bread, and a, a couple other items. And it was really interesting. So like with the white rice at two hours post post meal, my blood glucose was still in the 180s, like damn near diabetic levels. I mean, terrible. And I felt terrible. And Nikki at two hours was a 121, 122 or something like that. And I mean, just across the board, she had remarkably better blood glucose levels than I did. So that was interesting. And it was kind of validative of what we've seen previously. So then she just kind of out of nowhere, she said, hey, you know what? I'm going to do a dinner to dinner fast. I'm like, "Okay, that sounds good. We'll we'll check that out. And it was interesting because so she did her dinner. She didn't eat again the following morning. She worked out. Uh, We have a 10 month old Rhodesian Ridgeback puppy that requires a ton of training. And she's really diligent in training the dog, but it's active. And so she did her workout and then she's running the dog around. And we have two daughters under the age of five. And so, I mean, it's a really active life that we both live and particularly my, my wife being at home in the, in that scene most of the time. 
by 23 hours, she was getting hungry, mm-hmm. but she was still totally cognitively on point. She felt good. Right at that 24-hour mark, we checked her blood glucose level, which was 71, which is is low, but a good low, particularly for kind of a fasting scenario. And her ketones were at a 0.8. So she was already in a therapeutic ketosis range. And she was let, you know, effectively just right at that 24 hour mark. And this is something that we just don't see all that often in westernized populations. Now, this exact type of study hasn't really been done specifically in hunter gatherers and pre westernized societies. But what we see in those situations is these folks may go a day or two without eating. And they're hungry. They're like, they're definitely wanting to eat, but they don't have a decrease in physical performance. They don't have a decrease in cognitive function. You aren't a very effective hunter, gatherer, or horticulturalist if you are leaning against a tree drooling on yourself because you are in metabolic shutdown because you have to eat every two hours to keep yourself going. So, you know, your your question was, and I know that this is like the longest answer to the shortest question in history. I, I seem to be good for that. But the question was, do we see specific lab values that tie into this? It What I've noticed is a tendency towards if you are more insulin sensitive and that will be determined on your total caloric load, your stress load, your sleep, your gut microbiome, like there's lots of factors that go into that. But if you tend to be more insulin sensitive, we tend to see more metabolic flexibility. If you have a higher carb meal, doesn't really knock you out. You don't get super high blood glucose levels. You don't have hypoglycemic crashes. And then the flip side of that, if you need to go 6, 10, 12, 24 hours without eating, you may be hungry, but you are still functional. Whereas that insulin resistant individual They do a piss poor job of dealing with large carbohydrate boluses. They get a super high blood glucose level. They get a rebound hypoglycemic response. And then when they have carbohydrates restricted significantly, the first couple of days, usually 72 hours, they're in hell because they have neither adequate glucose to fuel what's going on and they are not yet kicked over to converting fats into ketone bodies in an effective way. And there's hormonally driven elements to this. And then there are also possibly mitochondrial considerations where the mitochondria themselves may be damaged to a degree that it's like taking a lawnmower that's been out in the garage for like two years and it's got some some water in the carburetor and stuff. And you just got to really rip the cord on that thing to get it to turn over and start using the the fuel that you want it to use. So uh, let me know if I answered that. I know it was a long rambly story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you really did. Out of interest, because you noted that your blood sugar spiked to 180. How long have you been low carb for? In a sense, it seems like it's not therapeutic, right? Even if you've been low carb and paleo for a long time, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to mend these type of things, this, this dysregulation when you eat some rice. Yeah, it's interesting. So over the course of time, I've been able to push that carb tolerance up. And Uh so now on my heavier Brazilian jiu-jitsu days, I'll be somewhere between like 120 and 150 grams of carbs. And I do fine with that. But I also kind of keep an eye on the types. And then I tend to put more of the carbs in the post-workout period and stuff like that. Whereas before 120 grams of carbs would have just crushed me. So I've definitely recovered a lot relative to where I was previously. And I'm I'm still tinkering. You know, I'm not sure if there's 
still some gut health considerations. I'm actually just getting ready to start donating blood on a consistent fashion because of some some thoughts around some potential low-grade inflammation from iron overload. So I'm going to play with that, and what I'll do with that is I'll probably go through three months of consistently donating blood, um, check the before and after numbers with regards to like ferritin and iron saturation, hematocrit. And then if we get to whatever delta we get from the start and the finish with that, then I'm going to revisit the seven-day carb test Mm. and see if we get some improvements on that. And so that might be one final stone that I need to to turn over and and explore. I know Chris Masterjohn had talked about really uh, reversing some significant insulin resistance. He had no idea what was going on, and he felt like it was largely driven by that iron overload status. Uh, that's interesting. I have iron overload as well as many other things, infection. So for me, it's a bit difficult to pinpoint what it is. But my carb tolerance has got a lot better with uh, fasts. So I've tracked with fasts and I've seen that uh, basically that switching point you were just talking about, the 72 hours get a lot easier and would happen a lot quicker as well. Right. My ketones would go up faster and uh, my glucose would go down quicker. Yeah. And it's been flatter over time. So it's really, really interesting. So you mentioned another panel there just a bit earlier, lipoprotein insulin resistance uh, panel. Yeah. What, what's that? Yeah. So people are usually familiar with like HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, the cholesterol is a, a fat-soluble, not water-soluble substance. So it would be like trying to mix oil and water together. Like it just doesn't work that well. But we need to move these, these substances around the bodies. And so there are these things called lipoproteins, which actually are the vehicle that carries the cholesterol passenger around the body. And triglycerides are also to some degree carried around, although they have their own carrier molecule as well. But these lipoproteins usually correlate pretty directly with the amount of cholesterol that we have, both HDL and LDL cholesterol, but not always. There are certain folks that exhibit this phenomena called discordance, where you may have lots and lots of small, dense lipoprotein particles and then a relatively low cholesterol level. And these are the folks that oftentimes, you know, it's like – 35-year-old triathlete, and they work out all the time, but they're also a, a shift-working firefighter or something, and they suffer a heart attack at age 35 or 40. And it's like, wow, how we never saw that coming. Their triglyceride to HDL ratio looks pretty good, which is a, a decent correlate or indicator of insulin sensitivity. And then their total cholesterol levels didn't look that high, but under the hood, looking deeper, the lipoprotein numbers were super high. And so... There's also a way that we can look at the lipoprotein numbers and their relative ratios, and there have been some really phenomenal correlation studies as to uh, to tie this link together so that we can tie that lipoprotein insulin resistance score to the real world. And the, there are some other methods for tracking that, like looking at fasting blood glucose, but there's limitations to that. There's ways that yep. that can be misinterpreted on uh, both on the up and the downside Uh, Fasting insulin is similar. It's helpful, but there's ways that that can be kind of circumvented. A1C, you know, so so we do like looking at several of these numbers in the beginning in particular and then checking back on them periodically because it provides a lens and in particular a lens to help us better understand that seven-day carb test because those carbohydrate numbers just in isolation can also be a little bit confusing. But that uh, lipoprotein insulin resistance score, what we found 
in the police and fire populations that we work with. I'm on the board of directors of a medical clinic here in Reno, Nevada. We found that the other methods for tracking insulin resistance, that were, we were missing people, particularly folks that were sleep deprived and or hypervigilant. So they had like kind of consistent adrenocortical response, some HPTA axis dysregulation. Those people were insulin resistant and oftentimes significantly so, but we didn't see it in fasting insulin levels. Specifically, blood glucose levels may not have been that bad at that point, but we were seeing some really consistent long-term insulin resistance when we looked at that LPIR score. Okay, so it sounds like it could be uncovering people that we normally miss. How about the waist-to-hip ratio? That's a nice, easy thing that anyone can do at home. Did you also find the same thing that it doesn't necessarily capture people? Like you can have a, basically be pretty thin and, and slim and have these same issues. Absolutely, and that that's where again we use it to build a case. But you can't can't hang your hat, you know, one hundred percent on anthropometric measures like that. Yeah. Great, great. And have you looked at uh, how people can basically recover carb tolerance or have you seen that kind of period, the timeline, any indication of, you know, say they did a seven uh, day carb test now, when would it be useful to retest? Like would it take like maybe in six months after following a clear paleo diet and all of your prescriptions? So, you know, you talk about a lot of that. That's a really good question. So the part of the inspiration for even doing the seven day carb test came out of research from the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And it was looking at personalized nutrition by, by tracking the individual glycemic response. And what they did in these folks is they had them wear a, a CGM, a continuous blood glucose monitor, just a little disc that gets slapped on the back of your arm. And it measures your blood glucose levels once a minute, every minute for the duration of the test, which I I forget, it was two or three weeks, but they had 800 people signed up on this study. So, I mean, it was a massive amount of data. They had over a million, you know, blood glucose samples. And uh, they then did a gut microbiome sequencing on these folks. They did a full genetic analysis. They did the standard kind of lipidology-based blood work. And then they started feeding these people different meals and the blood glucose responses were all over the map. It was similar to, you know, like my myself and my wife, where yeah. one person would eat white rice, blood glucose would go to the moon. Another person would eat white rice and they had a barely perceptible increase in their blood glucose response. And then there were wacky things like hummus, which, you know, even though I'm like the paleo guy and legumes are theoretically problematic, you know, I mean, hummus is protein and fat and fiber. There's hardly any carbohydrate to it, but hummus was about a coin toss as to whether or not you had a good or a bad blood glucose response. And what, what the one thing that they did figure out with this was that if you determined the amounts and types of foods that kept your blood glucose within lower bound levels, then your gut microbiome tended to improve and your inflammation and insulin sensitivity tended to improve over time. So I don't know that I have an exact timeline on this that I could relate, but what appears to happen is if you eat in a way where you're not consistently deranging your blood glucose, which seems to have knock-on effects with the gut microbiome and there's some some interesting theories around you know how acellular or processed carbohydrate can can shift the way that our, our gut microbiome is existing and it's a pretty interesting and elegant model. But 
if you keep things within good bounds, then things tend to improve in kind of a virtuous cycle. And then conversely, if you are consistently driving blood glucose out of what we would consider to be healthy bounds, the gut microbiome tends to shift towards a more pro-inflammatory state. We see elevated inflammatory cytokines on circulation. We tend to see elevations in, in insulin resistance. And in the book, I make a recommendation that maybe quarterly, we don't necessarily need mm. to do a full you know, reset as far as like a seven-day carb test or what have you. But I really recommend sitting down and just paying attention. Hey, how long can I go between meals and still feel good? Um, what's my, if I do a little bit of fasted training, how do I feel with that? You know, how's my sleep? What What's my kind of creakiness in my joints, my, my kind of subjective measures of inflammation? I am fairly geeked out on the quantified self stuff. And I, I find a lot of it valuable, but I still like to get people back in their own skin so that they can get a sense of where things are, are going right or potentially going wrong. And a quarterly recheck, at least on the subjective level, seems to be frequent enough that if things are sliding sideways, we, we haven't slid so far that it's terribly hard to get things back on a a good track, but it's also not so frequent that you just kind of throw your hands up in, in disgust and you're just done with the whole process and don't pay attention to anything anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On my own journey, I've quantified so much stuff, but at the end of the day, it's how you feel that matters. And you can even improve a whole bunch of biomarkers if you don't feel better, feel less inflammation. It's not that helpful. Can be insightful and give you clues, but we're still at uh, quite a rudimentary uh, level yet. I actually interviewed Aaron Segal oh, yeah. in uh, just the last episode of this podcast, actually, and he inspired me to uh, get into CGM amongst some other people. So ever since I've been, I've been playing around that and found it very instructive and not just for the food intake, but also sleep, which you talk about a lot in your book and stress. How important do you think those are in your experience compared to the food? Because we always talk about the carbs and the, and the food. Yeah. Even though I'm the food guy and, you know, like we used to run a gym. And so you would think that I would I would say that exercise is most important or exercise and nutrition. But sleep is it. I mean, sleep is it. And here's my my argument for that. Uh, you could eat the most wretched diet imaginable and it, it's going to be hard for you to kill yourself in anything short of a couple of decades. I mean, some some people can do it, but. You know, it takes a pretty Herculean effort to do yourself in with with even the worst dietary practices you can imagine. But sleep deprivation is so injurious to our physiology that the Guinness Book of World Records, they will let you jump a rocket motorcycle across the Grand Canyon. They'll let you juggle chainsaws that are lit on fire, but they will no longer entertain people trying to do unbroken, you know, uh, uh, longer periods of of sleep deprivation because the last two people that have tried it, they get right around that nine to 11 day mark and they just die and they don't know why, but they are dead and <laughs> they're, they're dead rather quickly. So, it, you know, the sleep piece is just so incredibly important. The, the stress piece is important too, but the, there was a, a great book that I read and I, I interviewed the authors called the myth of stress. And it, it was really a, fascinating reframing of this whole stress story and so much of what we experience in day-to-day -day life that we perceive to be stress is completely generated between our own ears. It's anxiety about finances. It's anxiety about how this meeting is going to go with our boss. You, you know, 
all these different things that really at the end of the day, um, we have an opportunity to either let this stuff eat us alive or we can reframe it and just say that's not actually a real a real threat. And so I don't have anything to be worried about. And so there's actually comparatively little in the modern world that is, in fact, a legit stressor. Now, the caveat with that, we have people we do a lot of work with police, military and fire and those folks legitimately live in hypervigilant states a lot, you know, because they have uh, life or death scenarios that they're dealing with every day all the time. So there are caveats to that. But a, a schlep like me where, you know, I, I live out on a small farm, we have some animals, I have two kids, I do the business stuff that I do, like I can let myself get spun up and feel stressed out. It's like, oh my God, one of the goats got bit by the neighbor's dog, which this did happen this time last year. And like the, the poor goat, its ear got peeled off, but it was fine. We had a vet come out, gave it some antibiotics. We we had to catch the the little bugger and, and wrap its ear up for about a week. And then he was totally fine. But when it first went down, I was, I was like, man, why did we ever move out here? What are we doing? This is a waste of my time. And it was like all this just internal dialogue and stress. And then I stopped and I'm like, well, I love living here. The kids love the animals. There's sometimes pain in the ass elements to this, but I've turned this from a, an acute event into a, what is for now, for me, a long-term stressor, but I did it to myself. And yeah. so I, I would throw out there that a lot of what we perceive to be stress is mainly self-generated. And then uh, again, circling back to the sleep part, I just can't think of a greater return on investment than trying to go to bed a little earlier sleep a little longer, you know, with within the boundaries of what's normal for you, just black out your room, have a really solid sleep hygiene process where you you go to bed the same time each night. And, uh, you know, it may not do wonders for your social life, but man, every, it, it, but then again, maybe it will, because you may not be a cranky cantankerous prick because you're actually right. well rested. So it's, it's hard to tell, you know, and it's able to pull uh, uh, five years of aging off of you in just a matter of a week. Yeah, yeah. Sleep is the hardest part. I was just curious, do you, track, do you use anything to track your sleep to try and keep you a bit more responsible? Or have you seen anything that works for people? Really, HRV is kind of the best thing that I've seen. Like some of these actigraphy things are interesting, but it is interesting. Again, even though I'm a biochemist, like I, I don't know if I weighed and measured so many things and I'm just like, oh my God, I, d I don't want right. to do it anymore. But I've just gotten into a point now. And you know, it's interesting. Folks like Tim Ferriss and some other folks at interview, they're like, what's your morning ritual? And hmm. because I have kids, the morning ritual is super variable. I don't know if somebody pooped their pants and they've got poop from their earlobes <laughs> or their toenails. That's a way different morning than if that doesn't happen. But what I have found is I tend to have really good control over my go to bed ritual. And so when the sun goes down and so this varies with the seasons, our, our days get longer. And so we stay up later. And, but when the sun goes down, then we, we installed dimmer switches in our house when we did a remodel last year and we dropped the lights down to a super low level. We put on some blue blocker, Schwanny sunglasses and, Usually not too long after that, I do a little bit of reading and I just fall asleep and it, it's like a ninja blow dart hits me, you know, and when I'm consistent with that and I'm also if I happen to be tracking my HRV pretty consistently, I just see that HRV score improve. And then if I do have like an off night of sleep, we see some pretty immediate impact yeah. on that. But I, I just, you know, the actigraphy stuff and everything I haven't found to be super helpful if we had someone that you know was waking up in the middle of the night or something like that and we had some hrv score 
feedback. The thing about HRV is it tells you something's up, but it doesn't tell you what that thing right. is. You know, it could be that we're having a low blood sugar response in the, the middle of the night. And so we get some cortisol release and that suppresses melatonin production. And so it pops us up out of sleep. So maybe we need more calories overall. Maybe we need more carbs near dinner. Maybe we need fewer carbs near dinner because some people are experiencing that rebound hypoglycemic event. There's not a one size fits all answer with it. But in general, I just kind of gauge, I wake up in the morning, I stand up. Do I feel clear headed? Do my joints ache because of jujitsu and being 45 or do I feel good? You know, and if all that stuff feels good, then um, I'm pretty good to go. And particularly if like that HRV score is just staying nice and consistent. Yeah, I've been I'm a fan of HRV also for a long time, um, been tracking it. I also, you know, find it difficult the same way you do. It captures everything. And if you're someone who's got some kind of chronic health or, or some issue like that on top of potentially uh, not sleeping correctly, um, overtraining, you know, you're doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, so I'm sure that's happened a few times. And there's these different factors and you have to kind of piece the story together, but it can give you that overall number. I'm just curious, what do you use? Do you use some kind of app or uh, is there something specifically you like because of convenience or something? Yeah, I'm just kind of old school. Joel Jameson hooked me up with the BioForce platform and I've pretty much just like cool. hung out on that. I know there's a lot of cool stuff out there and I I do have a few others, but again, I'm, I'm uh, yeah. both busy and kind of lazy with that stuff. I'll check in on it occasionally, but it's generally a deal where once I get a baseline established and it, it, it's a, a thing again, where it, I know that if I'm getting in bed, falling asleep, waking up, feeling good, everything else is fine. Like, yeah. And then on my training side, I do a little strength and conditioning, a little bit of weight work, gymnastics, and then also some low level cardio to support the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I just keep my volume and intensity really modest on that. 80% of my rolling is more in a drilling and aerobic fashion. About 20% is that like white buffalo in the sky, like the 20 year old, you know, three stripe white belt is, is trying to take my head off my shoulders. And so it's a, it's a battle for survival, but I don't do too many of those. It's maybe one day a week that there's some pretty hard training that goes on. And so long as I do that, everything's good. Everything is really, really good. I just try to make very small incremental progress, hmm. uh, mainly the jujitsu side. And so all of my strength work, all my conditioning work, all of that is of a remarkably low volume and intensity for the most part, it, just to support jujitsu. And like if I feel the least bit knackered after a, a cardio session or something, I went too hard because I need to save that energy for rolling and not for getting better at the, the airdyne or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're talking about volume, how many hours are you doing of exercise, jujitsu, and all, you know, all, all all kind of mixed together. So jujitsu is between three to five days a week, and yeah. usually an hour to two out. You know, like shorter mm. classes. If I'm time pressured, I I get the one hour class, which is a, a mix of drilling and then a little bit of live rolling. Uh, a couple of days a week, I usually will stay for a half hour to an hour of just kind of continuous live rolling, and I try to grab partners that I can, we don't set a timer and we just try to roll. We just try to, to keep moving and it, it forces a pace that you could maintain for like an hour straight. And, and I really, really like that. You get lots of, lots of repetitions in, in that regard. And then as far as the like weights and gymnastics stuff, I just drop in a little bit of gymnastics bodies, mobility and strength work yeah. during the, the course of my workday 
usually once a week, I either squat or deadlift. Uh, once a week, I might do some some heavier weighted press and pull weight room style stuff for the upper body. But those weight room workouts, I mean, I warm up and I'm, I'm done in less than 20 minutes. I mean, occasionally a little longer than that if I'm doing a lot of mobility work in between. But even then, it's not like I'm doing a CrossFit workout. I'm yeah. Two minutes of rest between sets, I'll, I'll do a set of weighted chins, a set of weighted dips, and then some weighted shoulder dislocates to work on my thoracic mobility in between those sets. And so it's not a frenetic pace. And then the recovery cardio, I will go – longer on that if I can. It may be uh, 40 minutes, 60 minutes occasionally, but a lot of those, my oldest daughter now is five years old and has gotten pretty good on her little dirt bike. And so I will drive her and myself over to a park right next to our house that has some dirt trails and she'll ride her bike and I'll, I'll run at a nice, easy pace. And so I'm outside, I'm spending time with my kids. And so, right. I mean, what there's like uh, somewhere between three and maybe eight hours a week of jujitsu. There's maybe two more hours total a week of weights and cardio. But I do try to do a ton of stuff. Like I'll I'll stick the younger kid in a backpack and go for a hike for as long as she will put up with it. And uh, you know we just we have a three acre farm where we have animals to deal with and, and we just run around playing hide and seek and stuff like that. So, I mean, I do a lot of physical activity running around with the kids, but you know, the, like in the gym stuff between jujitsu and strength and conditioning and all that is less than 10 hours a week for sure. Yeah. And and so you keep the intensity monitored. I just looked up uh, the myth of stress. Was that Andrew Bernstein? Yeah. Andrew Bernstein. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bernstein. Cool. Uh, That that sounds really, really, really interesting. Does that tie in with the gratitude stuff? You know, we we hear a lot about gratitude. You know, I've been practicing it for for a little while. I think a lot of people have. Did he mention that at all? Just Yeah. yeah, Yeah. He would be a great interview. He's a Mm. solid guy. Really, really good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So I thought we'd also jump into a little bit of ketones, uh, ketosis and fasting. Cause you, you know, you've, um, played around with this yourself and, and your, your levels of carb and it's such a big topic at the moment. You've spoken a bit about like, you can't really do the really low carb and the, and the Brazilian jujitsu and you can't get away with it. What's your kind of overall feeling on the whole ketones and, and keto diet? Yeah. The last chapter of the book is called hammers, drills, and ketosis. The one tool your doctor will never use. And fortunately that story is changing. Therapeutic fasting, ketogenic diets are incredibly powerful as potential adjuvants or or adjuncts to things like epileptic treatments, potentially working in synergy with conventional cancer therapeutics, just huge potential there. But it's crazy because you don't see people get into huge pissing matches about whether or not you should use a hammer, a screwdriver, or a handsaw to get something done. You know, it's like if you've got a two by four and you want to cut it cleanly in two pieces, a hammer and a screwdriver are terrible options. The handsaw is a great option, you know, and it's just not a lot of, of drama around that. But then whether or not you should be higher carb or lower carb becomes this religious doctrine thing. And and there is a little more nuance to it. There is a little more depth to it. But just empirically, we've seen people do pretty well at the power athlete end of the spectrum, the real short time indexing end of the spectrum and quite low carb. And we've also seen some people doing this ultra endurance work at at a pretty good level going very low carb. And interestingly, that looks like catering to the ATP creatine phosphate pathway and also mainly the aerobic pathway. 
where we have kind of a dead zone there, a no man's land appears to be these really glycolytically demanding sports like soccer and MMA and CrossFit and jujitsu. And there's just, man, you don't see a lot of just empirical success there. You know, you see people like me that try and try and try. Mm. There's a few examples. There are a few people out there that are figuring out how to do it. Uh, probably the highest, most highest level, most sophisticated person I've seen looking at this problem is Alessandro Ferreri. He, yeah. He's in the UK. Man, that guy is smart. And he is just doing some shockingly interesting work, you know, looking at, okay, if I, and he does uh, judo and, and uh, karate. And so not exactly the same as Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but he's found he runs great on a ketogenic diet. He has great energy. He can fast. He's lean. Like all this stuff is great, but then he will get kind of adrenalized and, and burned out in the process of doing too much high intensity activity. And what he's done is just tried to, to map out the volume and the intensity of the training he will be doing and then match that with like a maltodextrin solution or maybe a maltodextrin plus fructose because there are some arguments for repleting some of the hepatic glycogen uh, preferentially. And uh, he does some really amazing work. Now, for me, because I'm kind of lazy, it also looks a little bit like a calculus problem. I mean, Alessandro is like six times smarter than I am, and he runs a really well-done clinical intervention where they're just collecting tons of data on people. I'm kind of a knuckle-dragger, and so where I've arrived out with all this stuff is I just tend to eat between 75, 120 grams of carbs a day on yeah. you know higher end on training days, lower end on, on non-training days, but it, you know the – Overall story, I guess, is I think that ketosis and fasting hold enormous therapeutic potential, potentially some great performance enhancement under certain circumstances. But it's also it's a it's a powerful tool and like any other powerful tool can be misused or inappropriately used. Yeah, absolutely. I know Alessandro. I talk to him quite often, too. Great guy. Had to get him on this show um, soon. Talk about Man, all of yeah, that stuff. Yeah. So thanks for all of this. The last thing on just this uh, carb thing is you don't time, it doesn't sound like you time your carbs at all before or after training or anything like that. It sounds like you're very much focused on the, on the practical, which is probably 80% of society who aren't super self-disciplined and robotic about this. Yet I do time it a, a fair amount in that in following a, a guy, Bill Lagakos, he's a, a professor of biochemistry, I believe, in the East Coast and really uh, super sharp on circadian rhythms. And mm. he kind of alerted me to this idea. So like time-restricted feeding, you know, these shortened feeding windows seem to be quite beneficial for a variety of reasons. But he made a really strong case for this idea that we would do better to eat more of the calories and more of the carbs earlier in the day. And I know, you know, there's like yeah. carb backloading, this becomes, a, again, you know, like if you want to get a, a contentious pissing match on the Internet, you know, just just throw one of these concepts out there. But Bill, Bill made a really interesting case that there's an argument based off of circadian biology that we should eat more carbs, more calories earlier. And that is one thing that I've focused on. And so I, I will do, you know, whereas before I might do an 18 hour fast, I'll, I'll just do 14 and 16 hours now and yeah. then I will do a really robust meal. And then maybe two to three hours after that, I have a jujitsu session. And then that meal ends up being, you know, much higher in carbohydrate. And I, I again, kind of base it off the volume and intensity. 
But then usually my my dinner, I, I typically I do two to three meals a day, probably 80 percent of the days it's three meals, 20 percent of the days it's two meals. And that tends to be more the the weekends when I'm just hanging out with family. And again, I just want to be lazy and I, I don't want to cook yet another meal for myself and all that. So but I, I do partition closer to the, the Perry workout period, but I'm not like taking a maltodextrin drink right before and one right after and all that type of stuff. And I don't know, like there might be some upside to that, but I, I have noticed for my digestion that the, the digestive process for me does much better with less frequent feedings, um, uh, you know, and, and less refined foods and all that type of stuff. So I've had a pretty darn good degree of success with that so far. And I mean, it is, man, it is dead simple. I mean, I would be hard pressed to think of a, a more simplistic way of eating and fueling, you know, I mean, it, it is really, really simple, but it, 45 years old. I just got my purple belt last Saturday and uh, I'm, I'm doing great on that. And, you know, body composition is good. My wife is still willing to uh, sleep with me with the, the lights on most nights. So, I mean, it, it's a uh, life's pretty good <laughs> in that regard. Cool. Uh, congrats. I saw the purple belt. Uh, it's quite, oh, thank, quite an achievement. Thanks. So is there anything we've missed that's important about your most recent thinking on this subject? No, I, I don't think so. You did a great, I, I think, a thorough uh, job asking this stuff. It, it's um, again, I would just encourage people to to think about, you know, if, if they see if they feel off put by this idea of like paleo diet type stuff, just give some thought to is there any merit looking at biology and thinking about kind of the evolutionary underpinnings, particularly when we see things go south. If we don't see health or or other parameters that, that we would ideally like to have, if, if something significant has changed in that organism's environment, you know, do we do we have any insight from looking at what the environment was preceding that that event? And so that's kind of the totality of my greasy used car salesman pitch on this stuff you know is there anything that we can learn from that and it's not just around food it's around sleep and photo period uh community gut microbiome like all of these things really um when we see problems popping up it's it's this discordance model again and and modern medicine is shockingly well suited for dealing with acute injuries and infections and it has been an appalling failure with regards to chronic degenerative disease. And, and people may, you know, get their back up about that and like, well, we work very hard. And, you know, I, I don't doubt that people do. But if you simply look at disease rates and incidents, type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, they're increasing at exponential rates. Yet we know more about the disease process than we've ever known in history. Our iPhones and iPads and computers get cheaper and better every single year, and it's because we properly apply the technology and knowledge that we have around that topic to improving the product, improving the outcome. We do not do that in health and medicine, and it's because we do not start the story from this evolutionary biology perspective and start having the conversation from there because if you do that – Chasing symptoms no longer works and, and filing people into these arbitrary buckets of disease, yeah. not disease doesn't really work anymore because, you know, in the, the 1900s, the, the previous century was the century of eradicating infectious disease for the most part. This century is going to be about dealing with chronic degenerative disease due to affluence and it is not going to be solved by a pill or a potion it's not going to be solved by telling people to eat less and move more 
everything in moderation because all of that completely ignores every element of our, our fundal, fundamental evolutionary biology. Thanks so much for that roundup. To learn more about this, they can go and get your book. That's available on Amazon. There were some bonuses or stuff. Is there anything like that still available? Uh, the, the bonuses might pop back up again, but the, most of that was for uh, go- saying thank you to the people that were early adopters on it. Yep. But we'll see. Maybe maybe a couple of months down the road, we, we might pop the bonuses back up. Okay, cool. Uh, are there any other good books or presentations on this subject you'd recommend? Oh, man, if people are not following Chris Masterjohn, like they're really missing out. That guy is brilliant. And he's been doing a deep dive on kind of a series of different nutrients that you need to pay attention to. And he kicked the whole thing off actually with iron, both the iron deficiency anemia stories and also the iron overload stories. And so he gets into the biochemistry and the pathophysiology of, you know, when things are right and wrong. And then he also, you know, he starts off at whole food solutions and also make supplement solutions. And man, he is just doing brilliant work. Um, who else is doing great work? Uh, the folks at Nourish Balance Thrive yep. are doing phenomenal work. Marty Kendall over at Optimizing Nutrition. Like there are just some brilliant people. And you know, it's funny, a lot of them had a engineering background and then they, they either they get sick or a spouse gets sick and then they get in and start looking at this stuff. And it's interesting. They, they come in with no medical training biases. And after they start retro engineering, literally the disease process, they arrive at something that looks like kind of a appropriate carb paleo-esque looking, you know, nutritional intervention with a focus on sleep and gut microbiome and all that. And I don't know if that's just confirmation bias or, or, you know, really smart people applying their, their training to, uh, you know, figuring out a process, but it, it certainly caters to my confirmation bias. So I, <laughs> I tend to, to like that stuff. Cool. What are the best ways uh, for people to connect with you and learn more about you and what you're up to? Twitter, the, or Facebook? The, the blog and podcast live over at robwolf.com. The bulk of my social media time I spend on Instagram these days. My handle there is at Das Rob Wolf, D-A-S-R-O-B-B-W-O-L-F. And I answer just about every single question that is shot across the bow there. So I, I do the best job I can to stay on top of that. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, just a few more details, maybe on your personal approach to using any tracking. I know we've already spoke about them. So just really see if there's anything else. I was wondering, like, if there's anything you track yearly or every six months or anything like that that we haven't already spoken about. So I do check in on my lipoproteins like that LPIR score, um, LDLP, LPPLA2. Like there's kind of a suite of somewhat obscure lipoproteins, which I keep an eye on about once a year. And and part of that is because at the end of my last book, uh, I was pretty beat up from that. And then I went on a Discovery Channel um, reality show called I Caveman. And we had to live like Stone Age hunter-gatherers. We had stone tools. We lived at at, uh, 8,500 feet in the Colorado mountains while there was still snow on the ground. And we we basically starved for 10 days until I, I killed an elk with a hand-thrown spear. And then that was the first food we ate. But the, the long and short of that is I, I lost 18 pounds in 10 days and was super wow. beat up. And I ended up with some uh, HPTA axis dysregulation. My thyroid was, was super low. I had adrenal issues. Uh, testosterone was kind of tanked out. And so an interesting sideline with that was that my lipoprotein numbers were sky high. Like my, Uh. 
LDLP was 2,800 or something like that. I mean, really, really high. And the clinic that I'm on the board of directors of here, we, we do tons of lipidology work. And the docs were like freaking out. You need a statin. And I'm like, no, I don't. I've got other stuff going on. <laughs> and so we, we did some poking around. And I, I, did, so I actually went on some uh, Nature Throid, which is a, a, you know, kind of like armor, but a, a T3, T4 uh, thyroid deal. And I, I did kind of a classic adrenal restoration you know, story, high dose vitamin C, some licorice, some adaptogens. Yep. And I quit traveling and I started really paying attention to my sleep. Yeah. And uh, within three months, um, the th- I was off the thyroid medication. Testosterone had like more than doubled, both free and, and total. And I felt remarkably better after that, shockingly. And my lipoprotein number, my LDLP had gone from 2,800 to, I want to say 1,100. And then eventually it kind of settled out at like eight or eight or 900. So I do check back in on that every once in a while though, because that combination of super low testosterone, disordered thyroid, uh, which the, the low T3 circulating T3 that really down regulates your LDL receptors and the liver. And so you just don't clear mm. LDL particles. And so they accumulate in circulation. And once they start accumulating, then the potential for them to oxidize is much greater. And then I also potentially have a little bit of iron overload going on. So I had a really, you know, kind of nasty situation brewing there. So I do check in on that just to make sure everything's bumping along good. So I do a really thorough thyroid assessment, which is TSH, T3, T4, reverse T3, thyroid uptake, and then some of the the just kind of background iodine status. And that gives me a pretty good benchmark about where that is. And then I'll check uh, testosterone, estrogen, estradiol, uh, DHT to kind of see where the that part of the hormonal axis is. Because again, based off inflammation, um, fatty acid ratios and whatnot, you can start pushing uh, more testosterone towards the DHT pathway, which can be problematic for the for the prostate under certain circumstances. So I pay attention to those things, but it's usually about once a year. Yeah. But, but again, I'm a man, I'm a lazy cuss when it comes to that <laughs> stuff. I know some people test it like once a month and uh, I, I, I'm more of a once a year, maybe um, once every six months on on some things, but more of a once a year deal. Yeah, thanks for that. Very, very interesting. And, and, you know, and the fact that you recovered and, you know, you obviously see that as an actionable metric that you can keep up with. Uh, just wondering what, which labs were there, if there's any specific place, are these just like standard Quest or, or something like that? We or? tend to go through LabCorp because okay. La- LabCorp ended up purchasing LipoScience, which is the outfit right. that developed the uh, NMR technology around looking at lipoproteins. There's other ways of looking at it. And they, they have pluses and minuses to them, but it, in my opinion, that NMR spectra that looks at the LPIR score and lipoprotein count is is head and shoulders above everything else out there. The guy that de- largely developed it, William Cromwell, he was a physical chemist, I believe a PhD in physical chemistry, which is basically a physicist who studies chemistry. And then he went to medical school and then he got into this uh, NMR spectra jockeying type stuff and developed this whole technology around looking at, at these uh, lipoproteins. And they have some really interesting correlation studies that they're doing. Like there's a, a biomolecule called Glyc-A. Mm. And by looking at Glyc-A in relationship to some other lipoprotein fractions, 
they're claiming that they can see things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, insulin resistance wow. decades ahead. And uh, they're, they're still, you know, awaiting FDA approval on that. But it, it's really interesting. So I, I tend to really put some pretty heavy weight on on that lipidology side with regards to that uh, LPIR score and that whole NMR spectra technology. Thanks very much. Very, very interesting yeah. in stuff. Yeah. I think I know what you're going to say here. If you were to recommend one experiment, someone should try to improve their body, you know, health performance, longevity, chronic health issues, whatever, with the biggest payoff, what would it be? Sleep. Okay. Sleep. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe a blood sugar deal, I could make an argument, but if we improve your sleep, there is nothing else that you could do that's going to improve everything else more. And the, the one caveat with that, if we have say a shift work population, police, military, fire, new parents, medical caregivers who can't control their sleep, then they really need to get a handle on the glycemic load of their diet and get it to a level that's non-toxic for them. But even then, these shift workers, they need to pay even double attention to the sleep. When they do sleep, they need to sleep well. Um, When there is sunlight, they need to get out in the sunlight at at appropriate times like it becomes doubly important for them but yeah the the greatest return on investment anybody's going to get out of any of this health and wellness stuff is putting more emphasis on their sleep right and then do they just track like hours slept or something simple like that i mean hours yeah. slept is good but i mean it, it's more of a ritualized process like mm. when the sun goes down then you dim the lights and if you're still on the computer you you flip <laughs> on the the f dot locks and you put on some blue blockers and you set up a ritual so that none of this it, to the degree that we set our lives up that we have to live and die by self control we're mainly going to die we're going to fail and so we have to set up a kind of a a habituated process so that it really takes the thinking out of it. It's just what we do. So I would tend to focus more on that. And then certainly if you want to keep an eye on approximate duration in bed, but that's a whole other interesting feature too, is when you start paying overly an over amount of attention to those things, then you start getting anxious on it, you know? And I just see this like damnable downward spiral in the quantified self space where like I, I just, want to like put a a black bag over these people's head, drag them out in the woods and stick them in a tent. (laughs) And, and it's like, here's a Creek full of fish. We've, we've got them trapped behind a a fish weir. You need to get them out by hand and gut them and cook them. Here's the kit to make a fire. Like we don't make it ridiculously hard, but it's like, you're going to have to work to get your dinner. You're going to have to work to stay warm. And when the sun goes down, you're going to make a decision Do I want to sit up in the dark feeding this fire on the limited firewood I have, or am I going to go crawl in my sleeping bag and go to bed? And they're not quantifying a goddamn thing under those circumstances. And all of a sudden, all the digestive issues disappear and the sleep disturbances disappear. And they're, you know, they're three body fat percentage points lower after a week. And it's not because they're hypocaloric. It's just because they're not inflamed and insulin resistant. So it's a, again, like I try to get people to just live and, and, uh, I've really been harping on this thing of track what matters. And the longer that go, the the time goes along, I'm just finding fewer and fewer things that matter relative to the experiential process, like be in your body, experience what is going on, uh, uh, be in, in, uh, you know, contact with what your emotions are and, and develop a little bit of a, a Zen and stoic 
process where you can see these things occurring and then you can choose to in how you respond to it. Whereas if we're so tied to external devices for every little bit of feedback, then we're, we're essentially dependent on that. And I, I hate dependency of any variety. Thanks so much for this. This is really, really interesting. It's been a fantastic episode and thanks for being so open, you know, just like giving all these details of your own experiences, your life and everything. It's great, great show. Thank you. It'd be my pleasure. Huge honor being on. Thank you. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantified body podcast if you've got feedback or requests for the show you can email them to me at damien at the quantified body.net that's d-a-m-i-e-n at the quantified body.net thanks for joining the show this week see you next time